0: Lauren, mm. what is this for the people at home? What
1: are you looking at? Looking out on, uh, I assume that's a lake mm-hmm. in the Lake District. Mm-hmm. Not sure the name. Coniston. Is it called Lake Coniston? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's Lake Ruskin yes. from John Ruskin's house. And we're looking out onto, I, I hear you guys calling them mountains. Don't be around. <laughs> <rain. laughs> quite large hill mountains maybe i'm going to take them baby mountains <laughs> british mountains
0: there's there's literally snow at the top of this. <laughs> it's really big across
1: lake bosquet hello and welcome to bonnets at dawn the podcast that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke.
0: And I am your host, Hannah Chapman.
1: And this is the first official episode for our mini-series on literary tourism. Because Hannah and I love to travel, we've already taken several Bonnet-to-Don road trips to places like the Bronte Parsonage and Elizabeth Gaskell's House. But for this series, we will be expanding our list of authors, partially, in thanks, to the Lit Houses organization.
0: Lit Houses is a networking group dedicated to the preservation of literary homes like the Jane Austen House Museum, the Sheets, the Sheets Kelly's House? <laughs> Sheet Kelly's. The, the Keats Shelley House and the Shakespeare Trust. And once a year, curators and employees from all of these sites gathered to share ideas and present on a theme. And we were lucky enough to attend the annual conference back in November last year at John Ruskin's estate in the Lake District.
1: And um Hannah did this amazing thing where she actually booked us rooms on the estate yeah. in what I believe was um at one point a worker's cottage. I think. Yeah. I think, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well we had this entire amazing house all to ourselves, with the most beautiful views, a lovely fireplace, and the coolest bathtub I've ever seen in my life. I will actually have to put some pictures of that bathtub up on Instagram because you guys have to see it. We didn't utilize it though. Sam sadly. used it, but it leaked. Um, it drained. No. Victorian
0: bathtubs. I know it. It was It was an original. <laughs>
1: I was trying to say. <laughs> can't trust him. While we were at Ruskin's house, we did realize that um, although his name had come up many times in connection to authors like William Wordsworth and Elizabeth Gaskell, we didn't really, truly know who this guy was. So here is a short clip of us standing in what was once his dining room, trying to figure that out. So here's the situation in a literary home and we don't know what this guy did so i've picked up an informational sheet oh yeah and now we now you we know you wrote a poem so what is that poem called it's Ariad. wow okay so 1819 born mm-hmm. good okay first poem 1830 quite mm-hmm. young mm-hmm. maybe that's why the the title's so bad how old mm-hmm. is that 11 yes mm-hmm. 1836 goes to Oxford, publishes a series of articles entitled The Poetry of Architecture. Okay, 1839 wins the Newdigate Prize for Poetry at Oxford.
0: Newdigate.
1: Newdigate. Newdigate. Yeah.
0: The Newdigate family Nudigate. who lived at Arbury Hall. Oh, did they? Is that right? George Eliot? The did Nudigates? they? I think so. Okay.
1: Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it's a fact.
0: I've heard that name.
1: Uh, 1841 writes the king of the golden river okay oh and then and then we have some effie gray stuff but that's going to come later
0: he gets my range. we'll talk about effie gray after we've watched the movie
1: yeah <laughs> when we've become experts after mm-hmm. watching the emma thompson film 1842 <laughs> begins the modern painters like that whole series which is just like i think his his legacy Oh, and it was published anonymously under the
0: pseudonym A Graduate of Oxford.
1: Oh, not a great pseudonym. Heard better. It's fine. It's, it's like, fine. It does the job, Lauren. Why go anonymous? That'll be my question. We need to find a, a Ruskin expert and say, why? Because he's slagging off all the art. Why? Oh, was he? Don't like this one. I don't know. I haven't read it. Oh, that'd be cool, though. All right, 1844 Hades revises right, okay. Modern Painter's One, where he, he doesn't slag them off.
0: Yeah, they're like, could you go in a bit softer? <laughs>
1: 1846 publishes Modern Painters two. The sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1849 publishes the Seven Lamps of Architecture. Okay. Okay. Like this. Works in Venice studying the city's architecture and history. Okay. Sounds like a good good time. 1850 publishes the Collected Poems mm. and The King of the River, the Golden River. Sorry. Sounds like a urine fetish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today, I, don't, I think I would have a note about Golden River. Mm. Be like, mm, let's think yeah. about it. Let's take it to marketing. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Sales is not going to like it. Look at all these Golden Rivers around us as well. well. right? 1851, publishes the Stones of Venice. All right, what else has he got here? 1853, yeah. Stones of Venice, Volumes 2 and 3. He sticks with a the theme. I like it. <laughs> And then 1854, lectures on art and architecture. Wow, there's a lot here. Where's
0: the, where's the, that is double-sided. No, it's not.
1: <laughs> Academy notes, modern painters, three and four. Hmm? Oh, mm-hmm. man, this
0: is a long bibliography.
1: It's really long. Skip to the last page. 1880. Okay. He a- resumes something that was on
0: the other page. For's Clavigera. Mm-hmm. And then begins, fiction fair and foul. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that, though. Fiction fair and foul. Fiction, fair and foul. Mm.
1: It's testing well. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> that one. And then also publishes a joy for ever. Not forever.
0: For capital E Ever. Yeah,
1: forever. And then an expanded version of the political economy of art. Sounds fun. Uh, resumes professorship at Oxford. What else has he got here? delivers the storm cloud of the 19th century in 1884, which is a lecture, probably a banger, sounds like it. 1885 continues publication of The Pleasures of England. I want to check that one out. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty- and <laughs> there that, was other stuff. That's the summary. So, um, hopefully, that helped a little bit. Um, I'm sure you get the gist. He was a uh, Victorian art critic, watercolorist, had a home with some really gorgeous views. And uh, we really won't be diving into him or his life or work too much uh, beyond that. Because if we're honest, Ruskin doesn't fit the brief for this show. But, you know, we loved visiting his house and we particularly loved uh, this little bit of the tour that we're going to play for you now.
2: Within these uh, seven or eight rooms uh, of the original cottage, um, about 85 to 90% of what you see is original to Ruskin's own possessions. You know, they're not tables that have been bought in that just happen to look like something Ruskin owned. They are the ones he had. Um, uh, so Ruskin, it's the soft furnishings that are, by and large, have either been replaced or been lost. Um, so, they're not Ruskin's original curtains, um, and they're not Ruskin's original rugs. Uh, but when you've got you know, 30,000, 40,000 people tramping across here, they're, they're not going to be. Um, uh, the, um, however, the wallpaper was designed by Ruskin, believe it or not. Um, uh, uh, he took great delight in a lot of the domestic arrangements of Bramford. Uh, it was a very personal place to them. Um, um, and he left a lot of record of what it was like, partly in his writing. Partly that he used to like to illustrate his letters, so there were sketches of things he'd write some so I've just been rearranging the pictures on my wall, and this is what they look like. Um, uh, and uh, partly because uh, in the late years, the last 10 or 15 years of his life, photography had come very much of age, and the place was photographed, and quite a lot of photographs of Ruskin in the place exist as well. So we've got a pretty good record of how women's were and where things were. Uh, of course, in the of 28 years that he lived here, things moved around. He moved them around, it was a living home. Um, but it does, the other thing is that when Ruskin died, he left Brantwood to his uh, cousin and her family, by then five children, and um, they lived here for a further 30 years. Um, but they were living off Ruskin's money, basically, or what was left of it, uh, and it ran out. Uh, they sold off the Turners. Um, uh they still got through all the money, uh, and by the 1930s, there was one uh, daughter left um, who was living in the village because the rain was coming through the roof of the house, so uh, it was one of those situations, and a man from the Isle of Wight, called John Howard Whitehouse, who was a headmaster of a school, a private school that he established there on Ruskinian lines, um, bought what he could in a se- series of sales that took place of the contents of the house. For those 30 years, pretty much all of Ruskin's stuff was left untouched in the house. just lived in the other rooms. Mm. Um, so uh, so it sort of survived. But then it was dispersed to the four winds, sales around locally, and a lot of it went to the Isle of Wight. It all came back, well, not all of it, but quite a lot came back in the uh, mid-1990s when the school was closed. And um, and it needed to find a home, and it came back, and this is how it entered into Mm -hmm. the, well, complicated set of arrangements that I referred to earlier. Uh, So some of it's at Lancaster, but all the furnishings and everything else are here. Uh, But the other side of it was that a lot of objects had gone to local families uh, or people associated with the area, and amazingly, they kept stories alive of the objects. And in the last uh, 10, 15 years in particular, the pace of the return of objects to Brantwood has just got faster and faster. Um, so, for instance, last year, I was in the village and the local undertaker tapped me on the shoulder. Um, <laughs> 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 um, said I said, I've got something you may like um, in my workshop. Um, and it um, turned out to be these two magnificent bookcases, which actually oh, wow. belonged to Ruskin's father, um, were the family bookcases, then went to Ruskin himself, he brought them up to Bramwood from London, um, and they turned out to actually be part of a set of furniture which we had the other two in-build pieces. Now we have a painting, a little watercolour on the wall there, um, which shows Ruskin sitting in the drawing in this room at night and in the background, very just, very murky, you can just see the bookcase poking over his shoulder. Plus um, in the sale catalogue of the 1930s, the bookcases are listed. So, you know, we've had these amazing returns to Brownwood. When you go into Ruskin's study, which is the loveliest room in many ways at Bramford, uh, most atmospheric, it's a small room, but it's where he did all his work. And, uh, you'll see on the far end wall, uh, a set of mahogany cabinets with a small display of minerals above them. Well, those came back to Bramford this year, um, courtesy of some fundraising and uh, and, and, and um, some support from the V&A purchase fund. Um, they are the tip of an amazing iceberg, which is Ruskin's mineralogical collection. Ruskin was one of the five, it turns out, one of the five largest collectors of minerals in the 19th century, uh, private collectors. And um, the collection we've, in, we've now acquired is over 2,000 specimens. And so they are spectacular beautiful things. Uh, but it's quite a headache to accommodate them all, and to work out, we've all having to come down to geologists now. Um, but we are, so what we're going to do is we're going to make a room. Not we can't do it in the house here, but above the loo's, which you passed on your way up the drive, there's uh, a little building called the Linton Building, and the upstairs of that we'll turn in the winter uh, over into a sort of uh, a sort of mineral treasure chest, really, for people to come and explore mm-hmm. us in geology. Um, so that'll be our sort of project over winter and for next year. But that's the way it is with Ramp. It's amazing how people have kept hold of all these things of Ruskin's. Um, So much stuff keeps coming back. And I'm sure we're all familiar with this, that there's always more stuff out there. And and also, at a certain point, you become rather burdened with it um, in the most beautiful way. So one of the challenges in a house like this, which you won't see an answer to, um, is when you've got so much stuff, but you're really representing a man of huge and deep ideas, how do you begin to deal with those ideas? And um, so that's all in the way you talk to people. It's all in the way that you present things. So there's no room to put interpretation around the house. It doesn't work. Um, uh, we have done, you know, the old audio things and so forth. But but really, visitors don't want that. you find. Um, I mean, some some will. Um, so we have it, but. Uh, most people don't want it. And so actually what we find is that it's, it's a very contemplative space and that people don't need a lot of ideas throwing at them, but they need a really productive environment for those ideas. So what I find is that people come here and they like to find their own Ruskin and find their own space and they go away with oftentimes quite a small bite, as it were, of some idea that just happens to have caught their. Uh, imagination and then you just see them sitting outside um, staring into space for half an hour that's the real bit of the visit until it seems to me the best bit of it
0: this season you'll be hearing from more curators staff and volunteers taking you behind the scenes at places like Wordsworth Grasmere, Newstead Abbey and Chawton House but which actually the first two kind of like Boys Town we kind of went to Boys Town this time didn't we yeah yeah we did (laughs) which is a place in Chicago, which is not what I mean. I just meant male. I just meant males.
1: Yeah, for a minute there, I was like, did did we go to Halstead Avenue? I mean, yeah, (laughs) I'll take you there. Not what I meant. But also, we (laughs)
0: went to Shorten House. And today, we're going to give you a crash course in literary tourism with Dr. Amber Puglia.
1: You may remember our pal, Dr. Amber, from Season 3, Episode 14, where we discuss Charlotte Bronte and Gothic literature. In addition to being Team Bronte, Amber is also an expert in literary tourism. How about that? Very lucky. She was one of the organizers behind the Lit Tourism Conference called Placing the Author and is currently co-editing a special issue of 19th Century Contexts on Ecology of Literary Tourism and is the associate editor for another journal on Anne Bronte for Victorians, to check that one out, a journal of culture and literature. I gave Amber a call the other day to just sort of ask her about the history of literary tourism and, you know, talk about our favorite Bronte sister.
3: So uh, literary tourism basically is traveling to meet an author in some way or to experience a location of literary significance. So for some people that might mean traveling to an author's birthplace, to their former home, to a place where they wrote one of their great works, or to a gravesite if the author is deceased. Um, Or it might mean going to a specific geographically locatable space that's said to have inspired the author or which is believed to be the setting for the author's works. So for me and for a lot of uh, fellow Bonnets, a key destination for literary tourism would be the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Haworth, or the Jane Austen Center in Bath. But literary tourism is an important part of heritage tourism more generally. So that's the kind of tourism that we'd associate with visits to National Trust sites or to Westminster Abbey or the Globe Theatre. And today there's a whole industry that's cropped up to cater to that kind of tourist, the literary tourist. So you can see that industry if you go to a place like Haworth where they have a car park especially for tourist buses and they have cafes that really don't have very much to do with the Brontes, except in terms of that proximity to the Parsonage Museum. But they have uh, names that bring up Heathcliff or Vallette or things like that. And then you have the signposts that are written in Japanese. So there are all of these different um Bronte-themed stores and cafes and different sites that are associated with the Brontes in some way, but mostly by proximity to their home. Yeah, do you have some examples
1: of like the history of literary tourism?
3: I do. Um, so one of the things to remember is that even though today so many sites are set up for the reception of tourists, places like the Bronte Parsonage Museum or the Jane Austen Center in Bath, Literary tourism is actually a really old phenomenon. Um, It's been going on for hundreds of years. For instance, pilgrims were seeking out sites that were associated with the poet Petrarch as early as the 15th century. But it's really during the 19th century in the UK and the United States that literary tourism takes off as a widespread cultural practice. And there are a few different reasons for that. So, for one thing, the Napoleonic Wars prevented wealthy, aristocratic young men from taking part in the Grand Tour. The Grand Grand Tour is sort of uh, the culmination of a humanistic education uh, that saw young men traveling to the continent to observe other cultures and, if possible, to see and collect different works of art. That possibility was closed off for them during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so we see a rise instead in domestic travel, and like Lizzie Bennett, these people are going to stately homes in England and they're going to seek out picturesque landscapes that are closer to home. Simultaneously, there's this tradition of literary enthusiasts going to the homes of authors who were actually prepared to receive them or who have themselves set up a place uh, where they live as a site of literary tourism. So Sir Walter Scott builds Abbotsford, which is this magnificent gothic palace on the banks of the River Tweed, and it's designed for the reception of visitors. Um, And Charlotte Bronte actually goes to tour Abbotsford after Scott is dead and... Oscar Wilde does this, Charles Dickens does this. So it becomes a a site of literary tourism and it's created kind, kind of to be a part of literary reception. And then you have Wordsworth who did a lot to attract people to the Lake District by writing a guide to the lakes. So as the 19th century progresses, the UK becomes better connected with the expansion of railway networks. So it's now easier to get to these literary destinations. And then you also see the rise of a print culture that supports these kinds of literary visits. So you have the rise of the homes and haunts genre. And these books are top of biographies. So they're topographical accounts of the area, but they're interspersed with little biographical extracts. Um, and poetry and prose written by the author of that literary country. So they're kind of like literary guidebooks, and they become popular. And then there's also the rise of other print media that's associated with literary celebrity at that time. So an example of that kind of publication might be one of the author-at-home essays, which would provide an account of the author's working day and a photo of their study. So there are all of these different motivations now for people to go and visit the homes of authors dead and alive and to take part in literary tourism. And then the 19th century also sees the rise of different preservationist movements to protect sites of national heritage. So you have Dickens becoming involved in saving Shakespeare's birthplace. You have the Bronte Society which is formed in 1893 and then in 1895. We have Octavia Hill founding the National Trust and the first Bronte Museum being open above the Yorkshire Penny Bank in Haworth. So there are all of these factors that kind of conspire to get people out on the literary trail of their favorite authors.
1: So now, what's your personal interest in literary tourism?
3: Okay, so like a lot of other literary tourists, I was a fan of the Brontes. I'd been a fan of them for years. So when I moved to England to work on my master's degree, I took the first opportunity I could to go to Haworth and to the Parsonage Museum. Um, So I visited the gift shop like most people do, and I hiked on the moors, and I had a cream tea, and I had a drink at the Black Bull, and I rode on the steam train. And I just kind of uncomplicatedly enjoyed that experience of being a tourist and I knew it wasn't entirely authentic. I knew that I was seeing real authentic relics, and that was exciting to be in such close proximity to things that the Brontes owned and wore. Um, but I also knew that a lot of this was it it was a reflection of the fact that Howarth was a tourist destination, and so there was this whole tourist economy that was built up around it. And I liked going to the Bronte-themed cafes, and I liked you know, buying a book at the bookstore, even if those sites didn't have very much to do with the Brontes, other than just their proximity to the Parsonage Museum. And so it was when I started my doctoral thesis that I really started to think more carefully about the connections between literature and place, and the way that works of literature kind of construct or create a sense of place. So. During that reading, I started to notice the way that Charlotte Bronte wrote about Haworth and about the moorland landscape and the way that she connected Emily and Anne to that landscape, and especially the way that she wrote about Wuthering Heights and Emily's poetry and how they're kind of formed from the landscape. So one of the things that she said that really struck out to me was that Wuthering Heights was hewn in a wild workshop. And she talks about Heathcliff kind of taking shape from the land itself. He's rocky and craggy. Um, And I found that to be so interesting because she kind of offers a rationale for literary tourists to come to Haworth because her sisters uh, are present in the landscape. Her sisters took inspiration from the landscape and the landscape kind of provides an explanation for different aspects of their body of work. So I thought that was really interesting that Charlotte creates Haworth in this area as a site of literary tourism before her death. But I also think it's, it's interesting and it's problematic too because writing takes work and logically we know that Charlotte, Emily, and Anne were conscious creative writers. They were deliberate about what they wrote Um, they revised, they thought very carefully about their art and this explanation for their work, the idea that it's, it's primarily the landscape and the surrounding area that influences them and that is key to their work. It kind of diminishes them as authors and it kind of diminishes their work too because through that lens, the landscape becomes the most important or the primary or the originating thing that's necessary to the creation of Wuthering Heights or Shirley or Jane Eyre or the tenant of Waffle Hall. And so it, it's almost like the experience of reading Wuthering Heights isn't complete until you've gone to Haworth and looked at the Moors. And I, I think that that mentality is kind of a problem. So that that is my interest now in literary tourism, and um, the extent to which visiting the place kind of supersedes the work for some people. Yeah, and it's so interesting to to think about it. And certainly, I have visited the homes of authors that I don't know very much about. So I I love visiting Byron's Newstead Abbey, but I don't really know very much about Byron beyond what I learned as an undergrad. And so I don't know if I mean, I, I see all of these things in relation to the Brontes that totally escape me at other sites. So I, I think also there's the recognition that people come to these sites with different levels of expertise, and so for some people, focusing on the Moors and focusing on Haworth and the Bronte Parsonage Museum—that's an amazing way into the texts—and um, I. I think that's fantastic. I really, really think that's fantastic. But um, I do also worry sometimes about putting the place before the authors. Tell
1: us about the Placing the Author conference. And was that part of your doctoral thesis?
3: Um, I actually started planning Placing the Author after I had finished my thesis and graduated from the University of Leeds. But a lot of the ideas that I took with me into that conference came from my doctoral work on biographical fictions and dramas about the Bronte family. Because the landscape played a very important role and then also their house was figured as kind of a stage set. So there were all of these interesting things that dramatists and novelists were doing with things that we knew to be owned by the Brontes. Um, Like we know that this dish set is preserved and so that would work its way into a text. And I always thought that that was very interesting. I guess the real example that I would use is um, the Brontës needlework. So sometimes those needlework samplers would be described in one of the texts. And I thought that was really interesting. So I had already been thinking about material culture and why it was so significant to the Brontës legacies. Um, But Placing the Author was a conference that I organized along with Joanna Taylor, who's at the University of Manchester, and Claire Wood, who's at the University of Leicester. Um, And we all kind of came together at BAFS in 2014. So that's the British Association for Victorian Studies Conference. And it was about sustainability. And several of us were talking about sustainability in terms of material culture and also authors' legacies. So at the conference, I was giving a paper called Wind Farms at Wuthering Heights, and it was all about how the language that we currently use to describe different threats to Bronte country has actually been inherited from the pages of 19th century guidebooks and Gaskell's biography and even Charlotte's memorial text. Um, for the 1850 reissue of Wuthering Heights and Agnes Gray. And Joe had been working on women's nature writing and Lake District Tourism. Um, And Claire had been working on a postdoc at the Charles Dickens Museum. So all of our interests kind of intersected in these wonderful ways. And we decided to put on the Placing the Author conference together. So we held the event at Elizabeth Gaskell's house which had only been open for a short while at that point. Um, but it was wonderful because we had the opportunity to discuss literary tourism within a a place that was destined to become a site of literary tourism and it's well established as a site of literary tourism right now and it was also a place that all of these other authors had converged so Ruskin was there, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Charles Dickens and Charlotte Bronte had all visited this house so the house kind of encapsulated the network of literary visits that we were studying so it was just um a perfect kind of atmosphere. But I think what was unique about our conference is that we tried to get a bunch of different um, groups of people involved in it. So we had the conference itself and we had academics and grad students and undergrads and heritage professionals and artists and a variety of people taking part in that more traditional conference kind of venue. But then we also had a public engagement project called the postcard project so we had a website and we asked members of the public to send in a photo of themselves at a site of literary tourism along with a brief account of why they went and what they got out of the experience and that kind of exploded it was wonderful we saw all of these different postcards from different places that we wouldn't have expected to see so a friend of mine sent in a postcard from a literary site in Brazil, um, we had a few in the United States, most of them clustered around the Lake District, Bath and Haworth, that kind of area. So that really wasn't very surprising, but the fact that people were citing places like Darwin's House, um, what we thought of, or what I thought of when I thought of literary tourism was Chawton House, the Bronte Parsonage Museum, Newstead Abbey, those kinds of sites. And actually people were going to um, lots of different sites that that I hadn't properly thought about before. So that was really interesting.
1: You've also written a very awesome article about literary tourism that is focusing on our favorite, the Brontes. <laughs> um, Got Charlotte in there in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about this article? There's like, there's a lot. There's, a, I was underlining it and I was like, oh, I want to talk about this. Actually, I want to talk about this.
3: <laughs> there is a lot. So thank you, first of all, um, for the kind words. The, this article is one of my favorite projects because I got to work so closely with Serena Partridge, who is this incredibly talented textile artist and a wonderful person So getting to work with her was a huge privilege Um, to give listeners a backstory to this article because there there are a lot of different threads. Um, I visited the Bronte Parsonage Museum in 2016 with a group of my students, and it happened to be Charlotte's bicentenary year. So there was a contemporary arts exhibit called Charlotte Great and Small that was curated by Tracy Chevalier. So I knew about the exhibit, but I think that I was expecting to see the items on display in the Wade Wing. I wasn't expecting to encounter them in the main house. So as I was walking through Charlotte Bronte's bedroom, I saw this tiny pair of black shoes with really, really intricate embroidery. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen those before. And then I saw a tiny pair of colored boots and I read the museum label saying that these were the boots that Patrick Bronte allegedly threw into the fire because he didn't want his children to have gay and colorful shoes. And I thought, well, hang on, aren't those supposed to have been apocryphal or burnt up Mm -hmm. in a fire? Um, So what are these doing here? And I kept having all of these uncanny moments of recognition where I knew something about the object on display from having read a lot of Bronte biographies, but they were alien in some way, they were unfamiliar to me in some way, or I had read about them being destroyed or something like that. And then finally, I came to this handkerchief with a little drawing of Charlotte Bronte in caricature, and I knew that actually that image appeared on a letter that she had written to Ellen Nussie when she was in Brussels. And that's when I realized that I was looking at a collection of contemporary art. So I thought it was amazing, and I was just wildly enthusiastic about it. And I went home and contacted Serena, and I told her that I had been working on biographical fiction and drama since 2009, and here was an artist who was doing something really similar in theory, but in a different medium. Serena's work had all of these interesting textual backstories, too, and these backstories were kind of themselves patchwork texts. So she would have bits that were pulled from biographies, especially from Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte, bits that were pulled from diary papers and from letters and from the novels. And they were all recombined and reassembled to create these new little biographical stories that commented on Charlotte Bronte's work and her legacy in really interesting and fresh ways. Um, so I got in touch with her and we chatted for a while. and. I asked her if I could interview her and she said, yes. And so a lot of the article is about what she shared with me. So I th- I think you were going to ask me about the
1: nightcap. Oh my gosh. The nightcap. You're like the assessment on the nightcap. I really loved. Thank you. <laughs> so yes. Tell us everything about this little nightcap.
3: Okay. So This nightcap is one of my absolute favorite pieces because from a distance, it just looks like a little white nightcap. It's white embroidery on a field of white. And you get closer to this artifact and it's still kind of hard to make out just what's embroidered on it. Um, But in the dark, there's this glowing luminous image of a woman who's walking on these battlements and it looks like she's about to Like, she's about to fall off, you know, she's in a perilous position, climbing on these battlements. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting image to have on a nightcap. And I wondered what Serena was doing there. And the way that I interpreted that artifact or that pseudo-relic was kind of twofold. So the date and the backstory that Serena supplied for this piece places it during Charlotte's time as a student at Rowhead. So it's a time when she's away from her home, she's away from her siblings who are also her literary collaborators, particularly Branwell. She's really intelligent and well-read, but there are huge gaps in her education that become apparent once she gets there. Her clothes and her hair are terrible and people are making fun of her for not being good at sports and for holding the book too close to her nose. So they're kind of mocking her in the way that young people do to each other. And it's just a world away from the freedoms that she enjoyed at the parsonage with her family when she could read what she wanted to and she could write. So what's happening at Rowhead is that she's really being socialized here along with all these other middle-class girls about how to be a woman in the 19th century. And so of course she's having all of these new restrictions placed on her behavior. It's a world away from the freedoms that she enjoyed at home collaborating with her siblings in their literary games. You know, now she is being encouraged to have this ladylike prim demeanor and it's a far cry from the sexy daring intrigue that's going on in the world of Angria. So already we're getting a sense of her divided self There's the Charlotte who writes passionately in daydreams and becomes totally swept away in literary creation. And then there's the Charlotte who sits for her lessons and who does ornamental needlework. And by 1837, when she gets that devastating letter from Robert Southey, the poet laureate, telling her that literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, she responds by telling him that she tries to avoid any appearance of being preoccupied with writing, um, She tries to appear like an ordinary woman without these literary aspirations and the words she uses are, I try to deny myself. So already as a very young woman, she's seeing the need to maintain a conventional outside to mask this fervent imagination and incredible literary talent that exists on the inside. And then years later, Um, That interest in the divided self seems to make its way into Jane Eyre in a really striking fashion. When we have Jane up on the battlements, looking out over the fields and wishing for a richer, fuller life, for more adventure and incident, um, at that time, it's hitting some readers as pretty radical when Jane says that women feel just as men feel, um, and that men and women were ultimately equal, and that they want action and stimulus and opportunities the same as men do and It's just at that moment when she calls for greater equality That she's interrupted by Bertha Mason's laugh and for me Bertha is the warning about what can happen to a woman when she wants more than society deems reasonable or acceptable for her sex so I see this interest in The divided life or the divided person kind of all all the way through charlotte's letters and her writing um and her novels i think she's very interested in this idea that you have to mask some part of yourself in order to exist within society and so i see the kind of um sober white simple exterior in the daytime and then that glow-in-the-dark appearance at night to be a symbol of the divided self and I think that's one moment where Serena is incredibly insightful in how she constructs these little relics around what she knows about the Brontes.
0: And we are back gotta love that 15th century literary tourism lauren i think that maybe Mm. just maybe you and i should dress up in like some 15th century clothes recreate it do some like medieval lit tourism what do you think
1: we could do it i am not surprised you brought this up medieval (laughs) women writers let's go all right sounds good okay i'm down but
0: you have to make the costumes. I'll make so. them. I'll make them. Yeah. Okay. But we can have a spin-off. <laughs> yeah. Women writers from the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, obviously that definitely right up my street. And I also really loved the discussion just about how visiting places like Newstead Abbey, where you might not be so familiar like with the person that lived there, but then that visit helps you contextualize the people that you do know more about. So like how does yeah. this person kind of sit in history against like the Bronzes or against Jane Austen? Or is this a place that's been mentioned? Or just even like what does wealth look like? Like mm-hmm. we talk a lot about um, especially in the Northanger Abbey read along, just about how it's really easy to kind of think of the past as a flat level of income and actually you'll look yeah. at Newstead Abbey and it's very different to Chawton House Museum.
1: Yes. And we actually have a really interesting, like, episode about that coming out, too. So, ooh, stay tuned, you guys. So, the website for the conference that Amber co-organized is still up at placingtheauthor.wordpress.com. I loved looking through all of the postcards and the stories from the literary sites that everyone sent in so much – that I'm going to suggest that we steal that idea. I apologize, Amber. So I am encouraging everyone listening to us right now to send in their own pictures from literary sites. You can post those in our Facebook group or tag us on Twitter or Instagram. And Hannah, what are those handles that uh, the people would have to use to tag us in these amazing photos and stories? You can find us as always on
0: Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email them to Lauren, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Or you can share them in our mm-hmm. Facebook group by searching Bonnets at Dawn and just agree to those T's and C's, baby.
1: Yeah. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Amber, for joining us. Thank you, um, everyone at Lit Houses for letting us tag along for this conference and uh, thank you guys for listening Bye. bye